if you don't have the tools in your body to respond to the good things you're going to do, the exercise and the and the and the the proper eating and the and the eating and um, then yeah, you're going to improve. You're going to lose some weight. You get a little cardiovascular benefit from the exercise. But what's going to happen in the end? In the end, you're going to your metabolism is going to be in the same exact place. So when you move a little bit out of the good habits, you're just going to gain the weight back. And especially if you're going to um, really watch your calories and to be cal caloric restrictive, and you lose not only cal um, not only fat but muscle, what's going to happen when you gain the weight back? Are you going to gain the muscle weight back? No, you're going to gain fat back, which is going to so you, just because basically it's going to make you more metabolically inflexible. If you've ever struggled to lose weight despite dieting and exercising, you're not alone. Many people experience weight loss resistance, and it can be frustrating and discouraging. In today's episode, we're thrilled to have Dr. Ben Gonzalez, medical doctor and functional medicine expert, to discuss weight loss resistance and insulin sensitivity. Dr. Gonzalez will explain how functional medicine looks at the root causes of weight loss resistance, including insulin resistance, inflammation, hormone imbalance, and gut health issues. By addressing these underlying factors, we can overcome weight loss resistance and achieve our health goals, including a healthy metabolism. Welcome back to the CIH podcast, Sten. Great to see you. Thanks. Great seeing you too. Thanks for inviting me. So we had Dr. Gonzalez on our podcast for episode 28, which is a really insightful conversation on how gender bias can impact your healthcare. And we highly recommend checking that episode out. But today we're going to shift and pivot a bit and talk about something I think we're all uh, really wanting to learn more of and take a deep dive into, which is weight loss resistance and metabolic flexibility. So these are kind of buzzwords that you know people talk about. There's Dr. Dr. Google is an expert on this. Everyone and their aunts and uncles are experts on this. But um, let's talk with the expert here about this, Dr. Ben here. Um, what does that mean, uh, Ben, in terms of metabolic flexibility, and how does that relate to issues with weight loss resistance? Um, I guess one of the reasons why um, that term is thrown around a lot is because of the fact that um, uh, we're starting to realize um, decades of discussion on this. But I think uh, the lay public and providers are starting to realize that weight loss and the maintenance of weight loss isn't just about eating less or exercising more. It's about training your body to improve its metabolism. And first, before I guess before jumping into um, you know, weight loss resistance and metabolic flexibi flexibility, I think we need to talk about three specific terms directly related to all of this, like the weight loss resistance, or at least introduce these terms together because they're tied together. We need to think of these things together. The study of obesity and metabolic management is, is complex, and yet uh, medical providers um, talk to patients about losing weight, and, and, and the discussion becomes well, like, I guess linear right, and far too simplified. Unfortunately, this linear and diluted approach to weight loss tends to set the patient up for failure. And we've seen this over and over and over. Give these programs out, patients lose weight, January 1st rolls around, they do all the right things and they lose weight. And um, um, and, and then what happens? Well, they gain it back. Um, and don't get me wrong, we all know that the discussion of weight loss is, well, is, is labor intensive. We know this for the physician. Um, and um, 
and it takes a lot of time, but we still need to understand these three specific terms. And so the three specific terms that are related to weight loss and weight loss resistance are these, insulin resistance, metabolic flexibility, and the respiratory quotient. And this is important for, um, for providers to understand. All are related to each other and in context of energy metabolism and, and, and uh, in the body, and they must be addressed concurrently. Um, so the first term that I mentioned was insulin resistance, right? So insulin resistance, the single, you know, insulin resistance to me, um, and and as well established, is the single root cause of all non-infectious disease processes. Now, now wouldn't you agree to that? Yeah, I mean, it certainly drives a lot of the things we see downstream that we diagnose conventionally, right? Yet, yet, we understand this. Physicians understand this. Providers understand this. The single root cause of all non-infectious disease processes, yet we underdiagnose and we underappreciate consistently. I mean, there's over 100 million people in the U.S. with insulin resistance, and most don't even know it. And why? Why don't they know it? Because the healthcare system ignores it, and we tend to blow it off. Oh, uh, patient Jane. Um, you know, you're pre-diabetic, just, just, you know, we'll check in next year. Just make sure you exercise more and eat less. We have to treat it in the same way you treat the diagnosis of diabetes. Um, uh, insulin resistance is that, uh, just to, to give a little, um, I guess, a um, definition, it's the condition in which all the cells in the body become less responsive to, to the hormone insulin, right? And the top three cell types that are most affected are, are adipose, or fat cells, liver, and skeletal muscle cells. And brain cells don't, are, are, not far that are not that far behind. So one of the biggest contributing factors in this country, in, in, in the healthcare systems here, the providers are not recognizing insulin resistance early, and in fact, ignoring insulin resistance until it becomes diabetes. So so that's enough about beating up uh, the first term. The second term, metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility is the ability uh, for the body to switch between different fuel sources for energy production efficiently. And the three uh, major ener energy fuel sources, of course, are fat, carbs, and protein, and in particular, free fatty acids, glucose and pyruvate, and, um, and amino acids. So this ability is important for maintaining energy balance and preventing the development of metabolic diseases. Um, and addressing that, of course, um, the most underappreciated thing when it comes to weight loss, and that's the weight loss maintenance. And of course, the third term is the respiratory quotient. I'm not going to get too geeky on you. And like I said earlier, wave your arms if I start getting too geeky. We, we like geeky. We like geeky. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> so respiratory quotient is that measure um, of the ratio of carbon dioxide produced, um, you know, expiration to oxygen consumed during metabolism and respiration. So the respiratory quotient reflects the type of fuel being used for energy production. It's a great thing to measure when you're trying to figure out what's going on with metabolic flexibility. Um, so those three terms need to be understood when you are trying to manage your patients. Um, and if you're a patient listening to this, those are the three things your doctor needs to think of when they're talking to you about um, weight loss and metabolism improvement. Ben, can we go more into the RQ respiratory quotient? Oh, yeah. How would that be um, measured practically or how would it be assessed clinically? Well, that's the hardest part, um, right? Um, the respiratory quotient, uh, you know, to do it right and to do it very accurately, you put, you put a patient in the chamber, right? You put, the, um, put them into a chamber and then um, 
um, and, and measure their expiratory, uh, their expiratory CO2. Um, um, and then they measure that. And then that number that we try to get um, usually is between 0.7 and 1, um, with um, fat being the primary source at 0.7 uh, fuel source, while the respiratory quotient of 1 indicates that carbohydrates are the primary fuel source. And anything below 0.7, that's when you start getting into ketosis, right? Um, but for practical purposes, it's, uh, um, you know, that's another discussion, I think, um, that, that we can go over. Maybe towards the end, as we talk about the practical measurements um, uh, of metabolic, um, of me metabolic uh, flexibility. Great. Well, that's a great overview of weight loss resistance and metabolic flexibility. And like you said, so many people are under under underdiagnosed or even not diagnosed uh, with this. What are some of the root causes of, of metabolic flexibility? And, and specifically, uh, I guess, you know, you could talk about nutrition or gut health or other functional causes okay. there. Yeah. Um, well, some of the root causes of metabolic inflexibility. Uh, well, first, recognizing, um, you know, the practical way to recognize metabolic inflexibility is that individual who comes up to you and says, or if this happens to you, where, oh, Dr. Gonzalez, I get hypoglycemic and I must eat because I start to pass out or I get lightheaded. That's the first clue that that person is metabolically inflexible. Their body is so shifted towards needing carbs, they deplete their, uh, their glycogen in their liver and they deplete the number one storage unit of glycogen, and that's the skeletal muscle, right? So they deplete that rapidly, and then your body's inflexible. You're metabolically inflexible, meaning you're not able to switch to fats for taking care of the needs of your energy. You're depleted and you act depleted. You feel depleted. So recognizing that's an easy way. You don't need any lab to, to recognize that, right? So that person who just got to have the carbs um, or the, uh, the other um, aspect of that in, in recognizing is when somebody eats carbs and then they crash. They don't get the hey hypoglycemic, they just crash, so they get tired. So that's metabolic inflexibility. Um, and it can be caused by a variety of factors to include sedentary lifestyle, uh, poor diet, of course, the top two things, obesity, chronic stress, sleep disturbances, just regular aging. And there's some specific genetic uh, predispositions as well. We can get into that later on as well and the more geeky stuff. So first recognizing is pretty easy. So the root causes, top two things, frankly, a sedentary lifestyle, poor diet, um, you know, sit, uh, sedentary lifestyle, I'm sorry, um, uh, you know, uh, people are at work just sitting all the time or late night uh, watching TV, just simply standing up. In my own office, I have a stand-up desk, right? And just that in and of itself can help um, get you into the right place. And then, of course, the poor diet, as we mentioned, um, uh, high processed foods, refined carbohydrates, you know, constant sugar, eating that uh, that bagel um, and orange juice in the morning. And that's what you have for breakfast. And you're training your body just to shift towards the use of carbohydrates. And then, like I said uh, earlier, the obesity, chronic stress, um, uh, sleep disturbances, that's a big one. That's another contributor to metabolic inflexibility. Um, uh, the disruption of sleep, whether it's um, whether it's self-imposed, um, like watching TV or on the computer um, late at night or social media, or just regular, um, uh, you know, the, the life, regular life stressors that get in the way of sleep. And like I said, 
aging and genetics. So those are the big uh, contributors to metabolic inflexibility. Great. So, so just to tie that back to the, to the beginning, you know, for listeners, metabolic flexibility and insulin resistance and weight loss resistance are all related. And as we just were saying in the beginning, insulin resistance is likely the root cause of most of our non-communicable diseases that we're dealing with chronically in, in our country and probably around the globe. Um, in terms of the lifestyle factors that you outlined, like nutrition and, and sleep and movement, where do you recommend uh, people start? And may, maybe if you have any specific uh, tips on those on those kind of basic pillars first. Yeah, well, uh, well, first, you want to be practical, right? We want to be practical when we speak to our patients. You don't all of a sudden change their lives. Um, you know, I, I want you to change your diet and go and you, and you give them a specific crazy diets to go on. Or you say, OK, I want you to go get a personal trainer and start doing hit, you know, uh, you know, high intensity training. We want to start with basics, basic changes, this, these changes that turn into smaller habits, that turn into bigger habits that cause long term change in metabolism. So what I always start with in my conversations with patients when it comes to improvements, and that's to cut out one or two things at a time, or some some quick tricks, like if somebody has a number that they're trying to improve, whether whether it's a weight loss number or whether it's a, uh, um, um, a lab number that they want to improve, I tell them to write that, uh, write that number, just the number itself on a, um, on, on a piece of paper, on a sticky note, and on a couple of sticky notes, the same number, and put it on your mirror. Um, in the bathroom, put it on the refrigerator or the pantry in your kitchen. And those are those little reminders to make the positive choices for improvements. Those small reminders, small little reminders to make those positive choices. So, so he's, so here are some of the, the, the practical advice. First, clean out your refrigerator and your pantry. Just clean it out. Get that junk out of there and, um, um, and, and stop buying it. So you, you one, can't eat what you don't have, right? You can't. That's eat right. Yeah. That's right. Now, unless, of course, my grandkids bring over their dang. Then everything is <laughs> then, out the then window. Out the, yeah. And then you have to eat it because it's your grandkids. That's right. I will yeah. steal it from the baby. I will, too. <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's honestly, that's another um, kind of sign. When you, people, like when you see, some people, when they see a, a picture of a, of a chocolate cake on, uh, you know, on, on TV, or they see a picture of some chocolate, they want to lick the screen. I mean, that's how desperate they are for the carbs, right? I um, mean, others say, oh, it doesn't bother me, Dr. Gonzalez, but then you show them a hamburger or pizza and there goes the drooling and the licking of the screens, right? So we got to change that uh, and we digress. Um, uh, we have to change, the, make those small habits change. So clean out the refrigerator, clean out the pantry. Um, something as simple as um, I have this little uh, timer um, on my computer. I have, I have one right now I, that I carry with me and I have one at home. And that little timer, I flip it over. It's like a little um, uh, those egg uh, timer things that's, uh, that you flip over. Um, and I flip it over. And when it runs out, that's when I step away from the computer and I stand up. I do, and I do, I get really specific. So I'll do, a, I'll make myself do some push ups at the clinic or um, I do some stretches, some certain yoga moves um, in the clinic. And so, it's a habit. I do it. I even started to do it when I was talking to you um, a couple of minutes ago because it's it's become a habit. So so I'm moving. I'm not asking people to go to the gym three times a week and do hit. Like I said, do uh, high intensity training. I said, I'm just telling them to start moving. If you do that and that alone, it's amazing 
the changes that can happen in your body and, uh, and your metabolic flexibility, just making that a habit. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in a week. It's not going to happen in three weeks. But if you make it a habit, in about six to eight weeks of doing those things, you start noticing differences, noticeable differences in your focus, in your sleep, and in the way you can start losing weight. Um, uh, I had a, um, a staff member of mine. He changed one single thing. He stopped snacking after eight o'clock, just one single thing. Everything else was the same. Um, and he lost uh, 10 pounds in six weeks. That's all he did. Sometimes it's just the simple thing. I um, mean, that's, um, you know, it's part of the problem with uh, New Year's Day, right? Our resolutions, people make these big changes and they don't stick with them. And then they go back to their old habits. Um, it's the smaller things that make a difference. I, I, I agree. Um, I, I do want to, ask you a rabbit hole question about about carb counting or oh, yeah. sugar sugar counting do, do you you know we, we all kind of i think agree that you know calorie counting is a bit overrated of course it's about food quality and you know macro composition but in terms of the carb and sugar question uh, obviously it's going to be different for each person depending on how much weight they're trying to lose or you know how flexible they want to be metabolically but do you have a general goal of what you would consider a low carb diet or, you know, if someone's trying to go on a diet that doesn't have too much sugar, what, what kind of grams are you thinking about per day there? You know, it's people? interesting about that. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, obesity, you know, obesity expert and we have a, we're a weight loss center, so to speak. And I don't like that term weight loss center, but that's what we're known as, right? I consider what we do metabolic repair. So that's kind of the narrative that we kind of switch to our patients. Um, we try to teach them that, first of all, we don't care about your weight. We Honestly, first thing I sell to, to, my, to my weight loss patients, I just don't care about your weight. Um, I, I, I like that. I like that metabolic repair. I think that's a more accurate way to represent, really. That's exactly make, that's what's what happening physiologically, right? Yeah. And it, and it switches. It, it helps yeah. with the mindset of the patient. Like, you know, it, it, this is the first time I've heard a doctor tell me they don't care about my weight. You know, a 245 pounds, five foot four. Um, patient that I saw yesterday was the first thing I said to her and she 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 looked up at me and I, I thought she was going to stand up and walk out of the room she because she's like this is why I'm here this is why I'm here and, and I saw the desperation in her eyes like why don't you why don't you care and then then of course I finished the narrative by saying look if you don't if uh, we're going to do what's called we're going to take care of your metabolism if we if you don't have the tools in your body to respond to the good things you're going to do, the exercise and the and the and the the proper eating and the and the eating and um, then yeah you're going to improve you're going to lose some weight you get a little cardiovascular benefit from the exercise but what's going to happen in the end in the end you're going to your metabolism is going to be in the same exact place so when you move a little bit out of the good habits you're just going to gain the weight back and especially if you're going to um, really watch your calories and to be cal caloric restrictive and you lose not only cal um, not only fat but muscle what's going to happen when you gain the weight back are you going to gain the muscle weight back no you're going to gain fat back which is going to so you just because basically it's going to make you more metabolically inflexible so to answer your question it's interesting in the same way that i talk about um, exercise i talk about this with calories um, unless i'm being very specific for a specific condition for a patient, 
we don't get into macronutrient macronutrient management um, as much in our in our metabolic repair programs. We we shift, of course. Like if somebody's just totally carb heavy, um, my vegans are a good example of that. My vegans and vegetarians who are carb heavy and they're not understanding why they're not losing weight. Um, you know, my potato chip ice cream vegans are you know not understanding. Um, we we shift that idea of uh, of watching their carbs and protein. And then we give them the macronutrient breakdown. Um, so I tend to stay away from being specific on macronutrient management. Um, and it turned, I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, especially to some of the docs that are listening right now where they're, oh, there's a percentage of, uh, and I don't want to say any percentages here on purpose. Um, uh, it turns out when I started doing that, and that was about 15 years ago, it turns out that, um, my patient, it started to spill over into my patient's attitude towards, okay, it's not about watching the, the carbs and the protein. I'm a little heavier on the protein, of course, but it's another discussion. It's about watching what I choose to eat, making it whole foods, and then fitting it to that specific, whether it's a gender specific or age specific or metabolic um, problem specific, um, uh, making that shift it, it turns out that's the best thing for the patient. So they stop counting and instead they start choosing the right things. I hope that made sense. I know I didn't it, answer that. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. It, it does. And I think, I think it does have to ha be an individualized approach. Um, because you mentioned gender, I think it's probably a good segue into a question on metabolic flexibility between uh, or how you approach it with males versus females. Is there a yeah. difference or is, is there a lot of overlap there? No, there's. I appreciate you asking that question. You know, I'm a metabolic, uh, or I'm a, a a medical feminist about all this stuff. Yeah, um, because yeah. there is a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, does it make sense to anybody? Let me say it this way: Does it make sense to anybody to tell um, to tell a patient to exercise more and eat less, and expect the same outcomes for a postmenopausal woman? versus a 20-year-old uh, woman who hasn't had a baby versus a 60-year-old male who is morbidly obese to a 35-year-old male who's just inactive? Does it make sense to anybody to expect the same outcome? And the answer is no. In fact, um, telling somebody as a provider, telling a patient to exercise more and eat less is bad advice. I would argue poor advice from us. Why? Because they should expect more. I'm not saying, you know, uh, you know, it, it's good advice from a personal trainer, um, from from uh, you know from a personal trainer or your your basic dietitian. It's 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 okay advice from them, but from the provider who who should understand metabolic flexibility and inflexibility and metabolism improvement, we need to be more specific for that individual. And to answer your question between men and women, of course, there's definitely a difference. Um, the approach to improving metabolic flexibility is generally similar. For both males and females, however, there there are definite some some definite differences, lifestyle factors affecting metabolic flexibility in men and women. For example, um, hormonal differences, right? So, um, women and men have different hormonal profiles, which can affect metabolic flexibility. For example, women typically have higher levels of estrogen, which can affect carbohydrate metabolism and insulin sensitivity. One of the big fears of hormone replacement therapy for my perimenopausal, premenopausal women is, oh, I'm going to gain weight when, when, if I start these hormones. And I remind them that 
when they were in their 20s and 30s at their best, um, hopefully at their best weights, their hormones were much more elevated. It's not just about how high or how low, it's about the ratio of your hormones and about um, and about the ratio of hormones and about how they're working your body through the cycle, through your cycle. And so, um, um, and I, I tell my patients, you're going to be surprised that you're going to notice body composition improvements. You're going to notice body fat differences when I do replace your estrogen. And lo and behold, that's what usually happens. That fear, of course, comes from birth control, the synthetics, um, the synthetic uh, progestins, the, synthet the synthetic estrogens, um, uh, the conjugated estrogen, estrogens that um, that that, um, that the body just doesn't recognize and, and and responds differently. So that's one thing. Body composition is another thing. So what is the what is the fire of metabolism? The fire of metabolism is muscle mass. So if you know men and women have different muscle mass, right? That's your fire of metabolism, and. So like any other fire, part of the problem with starving that fire with low calories is your body gets used to um, uh, low calories. So your metabolism begins to slow down and slow down and slow down so that you eat a few more calories after starving yourself for a while. What happens? Then you accelerate weight, your fat loss, you accelerate metabolic inflexibility. And so men have more muscle mass. So that's why men tend to lose weight when you give the same advice to a man and a woman. Um, they tend to lose weight a little easier than women. That's one, one of the reasons, along with the hormonal differences. And so you, you have to um, shift your advice for women more towards um, um, managing their muscle mass, um, whereas with men, you don't. So that's another. Exercise preferences. How many men have you told, uh, Andy, how many men have you told to go... Uh, Go do Tai Chi or yoga and watch the look on their face. Really? Do I got to do that? Dr. Gonzalez, I want to do the uh, uh, gym stuff, right? Uh, or, or when you, uh, um, um, you know, but there are differences, the bottom line, in exercise preferences. So be cognizant of that. And the first question I ask my patients, I don't give any advice for exercise without first asking them, what do you like to do? And that's what I focus on. And maybe if I have to um, move it around a little bit, but try to stay towards that their center of what they want to do for exercise. And there is a difference between men and women on how they respond to exercises, different exercises. Um, and of course, I, um, you know, weight bearing exercises are important for both. Um, and then, of course, nutrient requirements. There's another big difference between men and women. Um, a lot of people don't. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, and a lot of doctors don't appreciate this. That um, probably one of the primary micronutrients uh, that we ignore um, that have to do with insulin resistance is magnesium. Magnesium plays a powerful role in multiple different things. Over 300 enzymatic processes, right, in the body. Well, magnesium actually plays a powerful role, um, especially for women, in insulin resistance and insulin met and uh, insulin metabolism. So, um, so, uh, and we're going to talk, I, I, you know, I'd like to talk a little about this, but I don't want to digress too much from this is, is, uh, uh talk about the different labs that we, that I would prefer to see. Yeah, let's with, definitely right? get into that. Yeah. yeah. So when we, when, when we get into that, I'll talk more about that, but, um, but, but getting your magnesium levels and managing those magnesium levels and getting them into the optimal range, um, is another important difference between men and women.
Great. I want to ask two more questions about lifestyle. And the first one relates to the the potentially for gender differences or, or you know, uh, at least uh, personalized medicine, intermittent fasting. Um, how do you feel about intermittent fasting? Um, who is a good, who is it a good fit for? Who is it maybe not a good fit for? How would you apply that to, you know, in your practice when you're working with patients that are trying to get more metabolically flexible? So this is how I do it. I don't tell them I'm I'm recommending it. I don't say the words intermittent fasting. That's how I do it. So I, I sneak Very it in. Very smart. Very I smart. sneak it in, but okay. I don't use the word fasting. I don't use intermittent fasting. And when I do, or if a patient brings it to my attention first, I say, yeah, well, let's let's modify this to fit you. So immediately just saying those words um, kind of gets the patient a little more comfortable instead of just another doctor saying, you got to fast and all the complications of fasting and but intermittent fasting is one of the most powerful tools you can use for um, to improve metabolic flexibility. Um, and uh, um, and so I do incorporate intermittent fasting. And in fact, one of my uh, I have a, a program. It's a very simple, very basic um, program that I call uh, the Athena five pounds in seven days a challenge. And I named it, you know, lose five pounds in seven days just to catch attention, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to teach me and the patient what the patient's body and the patient themselves is willing and not willing to do. And the Athena five and seven challenge is a combination of intermittent fasting, a detox and a cleanse and an elimination diet. And, and, and it's all wrapped in one. And there's a checklist at the end. There's a there's a very powerful checklist at the end of the day. I want the patient to follow the checklist, and then tell me what. And then and then um, they weigh themselves every single day for ten days. The challenge is a seven day. The diet itself is seven days. But the last three days, um, I want them to weigh themselves, as you can probably already guess, to see how that patient respond, how their body responded to those four um, things that I mentioned, and. Um, and then what the patient's willing and not willing to do, that checklist. Um, I do this thing once a quarter. I do this challenge once a quarter just to keep myself in check. But it's powerful in that it introduces the concept of cleaning up your diet, intermittent fasting um, uh, to the patient. Um, and, you know, it's a formal thing. And they and they give me the checklist. And then this checklist, um, I'm not going to get into the checklist. It's 10 things. But it gives me an idea when I see the checklist of what a patient, as long as they're honest with their answer, and I and I was, you know, ask the patient, answer, answer honestly. Don't answer for me or for family. Answer honestly with these, because this will be a powerful tool to use afterwards, and it helps me guide, helps guide me into my advice for afterwards, whether it's a specific program, um, and this, of course, tied to their labs and everything else um, that we correct. So. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah, you, well, you're meeting them where, where they're where they're at. It yeah. sounds like, and, and you're you're tying right. it into a a more comprehensive program versus just saying fast, which I think for a lot of people does raise those alarm bells. Like, ah, don't deprive me of food, right? That kind of thing. And it's interesting after they do this program, then they um, what happens is they start to recognize what their body likes and doesn't like and then when they start if they if they follow it as closely as possible maybe not perfectly but as closely as possible and um and then they eat something poor uh, you know they go to a pizza or they go to a sugar and their body reacts to that i use that i use that 
wholehearted as, as hard as I can. I throw it in that patient's face. I say, see, here's what your body is rejecting. Just like it would if you've ever, if you ever had a cigarette for the first time. If you have a cigarette for the first time, what happens? Well, you cough. You, you automatically, you cough, you cough. Your body's rejecting that smoke. But after hmm. a while, your body can get used to it. And then all of a sudden it's used to it. And then it's a habit. And then, then your body is okay with it. And I love it when a smoker tells me that, um, you know, uh, having a cigarette calms me down. When actually it's the opposite. It feeds into the addictive behavior of the high stress that it puts into your body. And I, I use that as an analogy for the different for poor food choices. Um, yeah, your body likes it. Yes, you recovered from that crash, you know, after you had the sugar. But that's your body telling you that, yeah, you've got some bad things going on. You got to feed a habit and we got to get you out of that habit. Mm -hmm. But for intermittent fasting, do you have that's great. Do, do you, For intermittent fasting, I'm wondering if you have a certain number of minimum hours that you would recommend that would be beneficial for on and off there. Yes. And again, depending on the individual, depending on where right. they are in their metabolic inflexibility, because I don't want to put somebody too long on someone who's got a, a pure carb um, um, issue, right? Right. And, th and so, this is not official medical advice. Please go see your doctor, nutrition's practitioner. We have please. to always say that disclaimer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, um, you know, the uh, 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 even the 12 and 12, the 18 and, and six, um, you know, where you you have an early dinner, you don't eat breakfast, you drink plenty of water throughout. I'm even okay with lemon and lime. I'm even okay with certain amino acids. Um, and that's another discussion about you know the program, my program approach. Um, certain amino acids that won't break the fast, but will allow your body to maintain muscle mass and, and maybe even absorb mm -hmm. whether you have a good gut or a bad gut. Okay. Um, so 18-6 is my usual, um, um, but you know, we talk about intermittent fasting, um, you know, there's, there's fasting, there's uh food restriction, you know, there's the mm -hmm. different ways of managing fasting, that. mimicking diet and stuff. Yeah. And there's the fasting mimicking diets, of course, that are powerful too, that help mimic that things that that's things that I do personally um, to help keep my body in check, to keep my inflammatory markers down. Great. Great. And then I think we should touch on before we get into the lab sleep and stress, because I think if those are not managed, everything else goes out the, the window, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, sleep is, um, probably one of the most underappreciated and under discussed, um, issues that we have, unless of course you have sleep apnea and then all of a sudden it becomes your issue and this is what's causing all your problems, but we don't want to wait for somebody to have sleep apnea. Number one, number two, not everybody has sleep apnea. Because oh, um, poor sleep does contribute to metabolic inflexibility, correct? 100%. It contributes to insulin resistance. It include, it contributes to um, the inability of your body to recover properly the hormones that need recovering while you're sleeping. A lot of people don't know this, um, but right around 11 o'clock at night, um, right around 11 o'clock at night, that's when your hormones begin to kind of go down, um, go down, go down, go down. And then they start to, and I'm speaking in general here. And then that's the recovery. That's the physiologic recovery phase between about 11 and 2, 2.30 in the morning. That's a physiologic recovery. Your body's physiologically recovering. And then between 2.30 and about 5 o'clock, 5.30, that's the mental recovery. The, the, the mental recovery happens as your hormones start to come up. And around, this is in a normal state, at around 
5, 36 o'clock, your cortisol starts to rise, your testosterone starts to rise. And for those people who automatically wake up around 6 o'clock, that's the alarm, your body's normal alarm clock. That cortisol coming up, that testosterone coming up, and it peaks uh, later in the morning and it starts to go down again in the middle of the afternoon. Goes up in the, you know, in the later in the afternoon, early evening. That's that second wind, right? Goes up and then comes back down again for recovery. That's normal recovery. That all of that is disrupted with with uh, um, the poor sleep and poor sleep habits. All of it's disrupted. So well, I think what you're saying is that sleep deprivation is a tidal wave that messes with all your hormonal cascade. And this is yes. why. And I knew when I went into trauma and emergency medicine years ago. Um, that I knew I was going to take, I was taking 10 years off my life. I knew that I was going to do that simply for one reason, one reason only. Um, first of all, the, the choice of trauma, <laughs> but, but, yeah. uh, but all the things that go along with that, um, the poor sleep, the nights, the night shift, and then uh, the bad eating habits, um, you know, the eating late totally. at night, yes. the, the, the nurses who bring who, with the good hearted nurses who bring in and other doctors who bring in the donuts, you know, to help treat the, the docs, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and the coffee and the cream, the sugar, all that stuff that disrupts. So it is, it is a under sleep is an underappreciated uh, um, uh, discussion. But ben, do we need Zen music in the emergency rooms? Would that be helpful? At all? Oh, Put man. a meditation room in the uh, right, right outside the telemetry or something. I don't know. <laughs> a break, something, right? Yeah, something, right. And right. and you know, you actually bring a good point. That one of the uh, things that I have, I was looking for my phone. Oh, I, that's right, I put it away. And one of the things I have on my phone is a nice little app um, that uh, um, that's, that's tied to my aura ring that I um, that I use five minutes, just five minutes right around eight, nine o'clock in the evening. No matter what I'm doing or how stressed I am or deadlines or if I'm working on my book or whatever, I turn on that app five minutes and I just I find a place in the house um, and I just. I listen to that kind of uh, that self that that meditative app, um, the, that music, that sound, um, just to calm the brain down. Even if I have some deadlines, even if I've got a lot going on, grandkids are coming over, whatever, I do that faithfully. Uh, one of the reasons for for all this, you know, I, I this um, this self awareness in myself is I think you already know this, Andy, but I'm a cancer survivor. Um, did you know that? Yeah. So I'm a cancer survivor, bone cancer in my face. I had my fa half my face taken off, thrown in the trash, and a new face put in, right? And 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 that was over. That was uh, nearly 35, 40 years ago. Yeah. But cancer survivors know this. Every day we think of these things. Even 40 years after, every day I think of these things. So each choice I make has to do with decrease whether I want to feed the cancer or starve the cancer. And this is the same thing, the same narrative I give my patients. I don't want to put fear in my patients. I don't do that at all. But what I do is I say, do you want to feed the disease or starve the disease? Put that in your mind with each choice you make. And sometimes I feed the disease. Sometimes I'll have that cake. Sometimes I'll go out and do my thing late at night I'll, um, and I'll eat late. But my, my, the majority of my choices are to starve the disease. And so the net good. effect is beneficial, exactly. solitary. Exactly. Now, Got now I, I want to be clear about something about that too. There's no such thing. I, I don't like to use the word moderation at all. You know, if you eat this food in moderation, it's like telling somebody to 
use cocaine in moderation and it'll be okay. Right. So use, yeah. You yeah. know, um, so I don't like that phrase, that term. I never use that term. Do this in moderation. It's, it's more of a make the right choice, make a choice for yourself and choice, choose whether you're going to starve the disease or feed the disease. And that's a better narrative. And, and people, my patient base tend to respond to that very well. Yeah. And let's, let's actually pivot now to hormones and to labs. So, and I think they tie together. So, um, in terms of lab work, I know we can kind of test as functional medicine practitioners, different labs that might be measuring metabolic flexibility or insulin resistance. If you're working with a patient that's trying to lose weight or trying to improve their insulin resistance, you know, just trying to feel better overall, what labs would you consider ordering here? So, um, my basic lab panel um, includes and and help me out in case I forget some things. You can beat me up because you know you know my lab panel. Um, so to start out with um, with basic with insulin resistance is um, uh, you know uh, I, I get the breakdown of the cholesterol. I think the NMR uh, or the nuclear magnetic resonance breakdown of that, along with insulin resistance, um, an insulin resistance score. Um, um, I can even give you the numbers uh, for. Uh, request is three, three, four, wait, three, six, four, nine. Um, yeah, three, six, seven, four, nine, um, the, the quest lab that gives you the breakdown, the NMR breakdown plus then some resistance. Um, uh, and the HOMA score, um, the homeostasis, uh, metabolism assessment, um, insulin resistance score. Um, those are easy things to obtain. Uh, I get the hemoglobin A1C, we get the, um, the high sensitivity of the cardiac C-reactive protein. This, and I'm assuming the base didn't, right? The complete metabolic panel, the CBC, all that. Um, the, uh, um, uh, let's see. Where, 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 where are you with fasting insulin? How, how low oh, or yeah, high fasting you want insulin, that another good yeah. one to get. Uh, usually when I'm getting the insulin resistance score or the HOMA IR, that usually satisfies that. Um, um, uh, and it usually comes with a free insulin sometimes. It depends on which uh, lab you're getting it from, what lab... Uh, uh, you're getting it from, but yeah, the free insulin is useful. Now, in fact, that's an underutilized, uh, um, this is a whole nother discussion, the, the, the diagnosis of insulin resistance and diabetes. Um, just the diagnosis itself is under, uh, is, it's under diagnosed. Um, we tend to use what in, uh, hemoglobin A1C and fasting glucose, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, I, I go by the, um, uh, the Dr. Joseph Kraft method of looking at insulin um, as a better marker, as a, a better marker of early, of catching things early. Same, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. The postprandial insulin levels. Um, um, there was a study, uh, 2015. Um, um, oh my gosh, who published it? But in 2015, there was a study that looked at. Uh, I'll think in a few seconds. I'll think about it. Uh, uh, anyway, there's a study in 2015 looked at uh, diagnosed coronary disease patients. Over 4,000 looked at the. Um, yeah, and the European Heart Journal, that's it. The European Heart Journal published a study in 2015. Um, they looked at just the fasting glucose, the hemoglobin A1C, and um, I believe that the oral glucose um, uh, test as well at, at diagnosed coronary artery disease patients with no diabetes. They're not diagnosed with diabetes. In fact, some adults that don't have diabetes, everything's fine. And they looked at over 4,000 and a third of them using, using that old criteria a third of them had all-out diabetes. Wow. And two-thirds had high-risk pre-diabetes. Now, imagine using the insulin resistance approach to uh, diagnosis. Um, pretty much probably 100%, right? Every which, single person, yeah. Which right. makes sense. 
It makes sense. Uh, the root cause of all non-infectious um, diseases, coronary disease arm, is insulin resistance, right? So we underdiagnose. So I like the HOMA IR score, um, the, of course, the hemoglobin A1C, the postprandials, pre-insulin, um, and, uh, um, and um, among other things. They're advanced testing as well, but... Um, but, uh, I know I for, for we, we look at fasting insulin and, and maybe trying to get it under eight at least, or certainly under five would be even better. Yeah. Do you have any numbers like that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, I think uh, the reference range that they use is um, anything below 24 is great. Yeah, which right? is ridiculous, right? Ridiculous. Right, right. Not ridiculous right? like at that level you are at that level if we thought that a 24 was high we'd be we'd be promoting cancer we'd be promoting heart disease right you know i mean these are things that that level of insulin is going to promote really i have an interesting example of a patient that i saw about three years ago with um artificial intelligence in medicine and um and the uh, the the use of artificial intelligence for um, diagnosis for diabetes and prediabetes. This patient was seen by a major group, um, uh, and they, they got a they got their labs over the years, some um, you know their annual labs. And they she brought to me. She came to me because she was having problems losing weight, um, significant problems with weight loss resistance. And she brought me all her labs, and one lab printout said your hemoglobin A1C was six point one, and you have prediabetes. And what was the and there was advice. What do you think the advice was? The advice was to exercise more, eat less, and we'll check it in a year. Now, it's, that's yeah. right, drives you nuts, right? But that's yeah. not the profoundness of this. The, 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 the issue with this was that she brought me a series over the past, of the previous five years of the printouts and, and the advice from her doctors um, about what to do with her. And so she had hemoglobin A1C five years prior of 5.4. The next year, it was 5.6. Then the next year, it was 5.7. And the following year, right? So there's this pattern all up to 6.1. And the exact same advice for the past five years of, you know, exercise more, eat less, lose some weight. Remember what I said earlier about that's the worst advice you could give as a, as a medical provider? Well, this she's a perfect example of why. Because she took the advice. She did. She exercised more. She ate less. And where did that get her with her insulin resistance? Five years of of increasing her risk for coronary artery disease, the number one killer of men and women in this country, and, and, and her metabolic inflexibility and her insulin resistance. And so, um, you know, it took me just basically less than a year to get her in the right place and because we addressed those things and she's a happy person. But that's a beautiful example of, uh, of how, first of all, how we underdiagnose and now it's sneaking into the artificial intelligence and it's much tougher to change AI algorithms than it logarithms than it is uh, uh, algorithms than it is um, uh, than textbooks, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's why you and I will still have a job because you know we have to look at it from a personalized perspective, not just a cookie cutter. Um, it kind of reminds me of a. We have to bring up Einstein now. The quote about insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, right? I mean, every year the same exact advice. I think we could go into AI Google chatbot and you know kind of say that, or we could be more personalized, which I think is what, you know, you and I and all the functional practitioners out there are doing. And I think that's what everyone deserves, really, you know, that kind of more personalized approach to being meta more metabolically flexible. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and you brought this up earlier, Ben, is that age and genetics are both related to metabolic inflexibility. And in fact, as we all get older, we just naturally all 
can't eat the same, you know, entire pizza that we could do, you know, did in our twenties or, right. you know, carbs or, you know, whatever. And so we have to be not just like sitting passively by the shore of this. We really want to be active participants in our own healthcare and be proactive and preventative. Yeah. We can't do, we can't expect the same outcomes doing the same things that you did when you were 20, 30 and 40. Each decade brings a, a new physiology to your body. And if you're a woman, um, each each time you have a pregnancy um, or birth brings a different human being. Two human be two new human beings are born on that day, and that's uh, a new a new woman and a new baby. And um, your physiology is different. And and um, not I, I don't like to say for better or for worse. It's for the better. You be you know women become a more empowered, beautiful individual with each baby and each pregnancy they have. And and uh, and you can't expect to do the same things prior to that and, and get the expect uh, the same outcomes. Um, so yes, um, that's where exercising differently as you age. You know, cardio when you're younger is great, and then as you get older, we start um, sh shifting towards more weight bearing exercises, right? Especially if you're a woman. And then if you're doing strong weight bearing exercises, and I've seen this in women, especially in women, as you age, they're doing weight bearing exercises, but not getting the results um, and you see this if you go to the gym you you, know, you see that same person on the uh, treadmill or in the weight room and they've got the big belly and and they're working hard you know they are but they look the same year after year after year it's because those things that we talked about earlier the hormones the insulin resistance markers the inflammatory markers all those things and by the way if you're in, interested in in uh, the, the listeners interested in the exact labs that I get, I can, um, I can send or you can, uh, you know, request, um, you know, that, that lab list that I have from, I can send you that. But if you are not measuring sure. those things as we age, um, then, um, then, you know, you're not going to get the same, uh, you know, improved outcome. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for this wide ranging and really truly important conversation because really metabolic flexibility is something we all need as we all get older and, and hopefully we all get, you know, biologically more healthy, even as we chronologically age. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, we love this conversation. Um, ben, how, thank you so much. Uh, how can listeners learn more about you and work with you? Um, so uh, a couple of ways. Um, first of all, um, my clinics in Silver Spring, Maryland, Atlantis Medical Wellness Center, um, and, um, and the website is just at atlantismedcenter.com. That's one way to get a hold of me. But to get a hold of me directly, um, Instagram. I have a great um, social media team that uh, if you, um, if you uh, direct message on my Instagram, um, and the Instagram is uh, my name, all one word, Ben Gonzalez. That's G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z -E underscore M-D. Um, if you direct message there, I have a wonderful team and they, they, they're very responsive and uh, you can reach me through that. Um, Great. yeah, this, it, we just barely touched on this, didn't we? Um, I know there's, there's so, so much, much it's say. the tip of the iceberg. I think for now, at least till the next time, what is one thing you wish everyone listening knew about metabolic flexibility? Just that take home. Empowering yourself. If you're, if you're, uh, if you're a patient, if you're a, a lay person, a non-medical provider here, um, the number one thing to do is empowering yourself with the knowledge 
that yes, you've been trying to do the right things, but empower yourself to ask your doctor, ask your provider, what can you do? First of all, please measure my insulin resistance. Just please measure it and, and give the lab, give, take the, take a list with you. It's okay. I love it when a patient brings me a list. I know that's, especially if you have a 15 minute appointment with your doctor and the doctor's got so many things they got to do. And then all of a sudden the patient brought a list and oh my gosh, no, give it to them. Say, look, this is what I really want. Um, as, as someone who's supposed to be in charge of my health, I really would like this. Um, so empower yourself to, to, to understand that you are in charge of your health. So ask your doctor what you want. It's okay. Um, the healthcare system kind of beats us up. It, it makes, uh, it kind of puts a rift between patients and doctors, right? It almost turns us into enemies when we should be friends and we should be, uh, you know, work together for your partners. Yeah, for, yeah. for you docs who are listening to this, um, look up Dr. Joseph Kraft um, and his way of, of, uh, of looking at insulin and, and his studies on looking at it um, uh, and diagnosing insulin resistance. Just do that one thing. And, um, and I think it'll open up your eyes to what's going on with, um, with metabolic disease in this country. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. And uh, that's not the same craft that created Kraft macaroni and cheese, I'm sure. But... No, 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 no. And I don't think they're related. Okay. All right. Not, you never right? know, but yeah. could be, you know, two sides of the family or something. Um, just a real quick epilogue and bonus here. Um, the miracle mineral magnesium, we wanted to talk about that yeah. real quick. Any any sort of lab value uh, thank you. like there? Um, yeah, thanks like for bringing that up because yeah, uh, that sure. does play a powerful role in, um, in insulin resistance. It really does. Um, so, um, uh, I just saw this somewhere. I think it was online somewhere. It talked about, uh, someone was trying to sell something and, uh, I can't remember what it was, but they, they talked about serum magnesium levels are so important. You want to wait till it's uh, less than 1.8. And, um, so, but actually you don't, serum magnesium levels aren't a sensitive way in checking for someone's magnesium levels. It's the red blood cell magnesium levels that are more sensitive. And I, I like to keep my patients between 5.8 and 6.8 um, in their magnesium levels. Um, okay. Okay. And uh, and I believe the uh, you'll see that um, you know the lab says again, like we talked about in another lab uh, reference range, that 4.1 is okay, and it's not. It's not. So between yeah. 5.8, 6.8 is where I like to keep the red blood cell magnesium level. I'm glad you asked that question. So we want to thrive, not survive. I think is what you're saying. Like the shaka too. I'm gonna to do that. Um, you know the Hawaii shaka. Anyway, the, the, it's an old habit. Yeah, I'm a got surfer it. Oh, boy. I thought you were a surfer because that's actually something. Well, I that am a surfer. They do. There you go. surfing for decades. Awesome. That's <laughs> definitely great for grounding and you know good for metabolic flexibility as well. Thank you so much, Ben, for being on our podcast again, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Take care, and thank you again for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.